This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Am on Monday, the 19th of September. I'm Shazana Mokhtar in studio today with Philip C and Wong Xiaoning. Good morning. Selamat pagi, Malaysia. We are back at the start of another work week after what I hope was a very relaxing and restful long weekend. Did you have a good week, long weekend, Shaz? As always, Philip. As I heard one of our, one of us actually was cavorting all around some island in Thailand. Oh, wonderful. Yes, I wonder who that person was. Me, 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 me. Yes, it was me. Hands up. I went on a little trip. But you know what, Philip? Uh, what shocked me was when I came back to Malaysia, guess what? The aero trains in KLIA aren't, walking, aren't working, so everyone had to take a bus. I see. Did you enjoy the, the, the ride around the tarmac? No, I didn't. And <laughs> didn't. I'm wondering, when, when will these things be repaired? Because we want tourism to like happen, right? Yes, and without yes. anyone being inconvenienced. I heard they're replacing the aero trains. But tell me, you know, what souvenirs did you bring back for us from Phuket? Snacks, of course, snacks. Snacks, okay. I look, and, for, and look forward to that. And this is something different. I brought you all some mosquito repellent. You know, you can never have too much of that. And especially with the rains, I feel like in rising cases I, of dengue, mosquito repellent, that's something I that everyone should have in their stash. I disagree for sure because I've seen a lot of mosquitoes around me trying to suck my blood. Just remember, guys, it's always dengue season. So be careful out yeah, there. Yeah, those black and white stripy mosquitoes is terrible. Now, with that little PSA, let's give uh, let's give the good folks out there a preview of what we're going to be discussing this morning. More than just mosquitoes and island getaways, we're going to start with 7.15 when we take a look at the acute labour shortage that the country has faced since the onset of the pandemic. How has this impacted the country's economic recovery? We'll have Jeremy Go, Head of Research at Hong Leong Bank, to give us his analysis. And at 7.30, we discuss about President Vladimir Putin's meeting with his Indian and Chinese counterparts parts last week. What signals did they give regarding the war in Ukraine? We discussed the outcome of these meetings with political analyst Dr. Pradeep Taneja of Melbourne University. Then at 7.45, we're going to ask you the difference between brand name and generic pharmaceuticals because somebody says he only wants his brand name pharmaceuticals. And we're going to find out whether that's really there is a difference uh, and also discuss medicine procurement with Mark Chong. All this and more today on The Morning Run, so you'll want to stay with us, BFM 89.9. BFM 89.9, that was The Wallflowers with One Headlight. You are listening to The Morning Run. I'm Shazana Mokhtar with Philip C. and Wong Xiaoning, 6.08am on Monday the 19th of September. Now, the first story we're looking at is all about um, philanthropy. We've heard of the Giving Pledge, spearheaded by Bill Gates and Warren Buffett back in 2010, in which they corralled their fellow billionaires to donate at least half of their wealth to charitable causes. Now, last week, the founder of Patagonia, Yvonne Schwinard, went a step further than just pledging to donate funds. He essentially gave away his lucrative outdoor sportswear company to a nonprofit organization and a specially designed trust, which will use the commercial proceeds of the business to combat climate change and protect the environment. Now, this is a very unusual move in the corporate world. How effective do you think this will be in actually achieving the noble goals intended? It is unusual. It is unprecedented to give away your company. I mean, we know the likes of Bill Gates, Warren Buffett, where the proceeds go into a trust and then that trust is then done, right? But this is giving your entire company. And I just went to the website patagonia.com. Do you like the stuff? I love the stuff. Super cool and super super expensive, expensive. by the way. It's super expensive. And the main page is Earth is now our only shareholder. 
if we hope have any hope of a thriving planet, much less a business, it is going to take all of us doing what we can with the resources we have. This is what we can do. So I think it was very clear in his mind. You know, we always talk about shifting from shareholder to stakeholder as part of the whole ESG conversation. And now he's kind of gone back to the whole point that the earth is the shareholder here. He did consider there were a lot of other options that they were looking at in terms of how they could allocate their um, income in the best way. Uh, they, they thought of going public, but they felt that the whole shareholder, um, mm. I, I guess, shareholder interest, the whole capitalism of it just wasn't a good vehicle for what they planned to do. Um, some though have pointed out the irony of a consumer company, which, you know, is selling things. Essentially, you want people to buy your things. And, and I guess the, the, the juxtaposition of giving away your income to do something good. There's just some weird, uh, it's like a weird, conund- not conundrum, but it's, it's, it, it's kind of like you're still gaining something out of people. It's- Okay, so and I'm, I'm going to be the Debbie Downer here. Guess what he's going to save? He's going to save a huge tax bill. Ha! Yes, I <laughs> okay, mean... Okay, so he, yeah. this company, according to the New York Times, value is valued at about $3 billion. Now, if he had sold this company, he would have been slapped with a capital gains tax. Uh, he would have also been slapped if he had given away his assets to his family mm. members uh, with the inheritance tax. So by doing this, uh, he has actually saved something like $700 million worth of tax. But I guess the point is, you know, he didn't want to pay that tax to government. But did he get any gains from actually giving it away? Personal gains? That's, I guess, the question, well, right? Then because we, you tax it for the personal gains. Okay, so what he has done is he has transferred the family shares mm. of Patagonia, which is about 2% of the company, to a non-profit trust. My question is, does the non-profit trust make any income from the company, uh, whether it's because of director's fees yeah. or, you know, it's a share of dividend? Well, how does it work? What kind of relationship is there? Is there any fees or transfers of income? So there is, then the family still benefits from sure, this trust, that, yeah, right? That takes place, yes. I think the point is they still have to make profit in order to give the money to this trust or the non-profit organization. They can't suddenly become loss-making, you know? Yeah, it's yeah. They still have to work on the consumer model. Um, and that's where the the weirdness of it but comes But the question is, where do the profits go to, right? Where is it reinvested in? Is it reinvested in the environment? Is it reinvested back into the company? Who manages the Who trust? Who manages the trust? And guess, and what? And guess yeah. what? Trustees make money. It's well, not like sure. It's not like a free... Normally, there is a trustee fee. So maybe that's where the family still gets yes. a, a share of their profit. Now, in the past, some credit to Patagonia. They already always give away 1% of sales each year uh, to environmental non-profits. But I think, okay, the Debbie Downer and me uh, also questions whether, and it's something that the Bloomberg article that I, I, I am looking at uh, is questioning is whether this is how the ultra-wealthy should be able to circumvent tax. True point. But I mean, in the biggest scheme of things, 2% is the trust. 98% is the company, right? That's where it's big sub- substantial, isn't it? The big money is back to the company. I mean, you make, I guess you raise a really good point, Xiaoning, because I don't know if anybody else apart from Yvonne Schrenard, if they were to do this, whether it would have the same altruistic feel. Because don't forget, he started out the business. You can see from the very beginning, Patagonia has always stood for yes. the environment. It's always stood for um, mm. sustainability. So they have a very long history of, of sticking to this path. So them taking this is perhaps can well I can view it in a less cynical manner than say if a company like I don't know give me a huge consumer Microsoft. brand or GE or yeah. or you know you yeah. the the 
the the the uh, ethos of the company correct. is different, right? Yeah. I mean, I was I was also listening to this Wall Street Journal and Eileen Fisher. Another way you could do it is actually giving away your shares of companies to your employees, a bit like John Lewis, you know, where mm. it's almost like a co-op system. Yeah. So I think there are always different ways where people want to contribute back to either the environment, back to their staff, back to some form of non-profit. But the point is, it should always be encouraged. Just because you're rich doesn't mean that you can't share it. Don't hoard it. Don't hoard it. You can't take it with you. 6.13 in the morning. Tell us what you think about uh, Patagonia's steps. Uh, do, is this the way for rich people to share their wealth for the betterment of the world? You can WhatsApp us 018-789-8899 or tweet us at BFM Radio. We're heading into some messages and when we come back, we'll take a look at queues and who are the champion of queues? Well, the British, of course. Stay tuned for that conversation. BFM 89.9. BFM 89.9. That was Kenny Rogers and Dolly Parton with Islands in the Stream. You are listening to The Morning Run. I'm Shazana Mokhtar with Philip C. and Wong Shaoning. Now, over the weekend, the queue for people to pay their last respects to the late Queen Elizabeth in London stretched miles long along the Thames, with the longest waiting time at one point was 24 hours. <laughs> Didn't David Beckham queue for 12 hours? He did, he did. And right? there was a lot of uh, controversy about certain other celebrities who skipped the queue. Really? Who are those people? Name them, you name and shame. You, yeah, well, it came out actually in the UK newspapers. But anyway, back to your original piece. Well, uh, we're talking, we can, <laughs> we, can talk, we're, we can talk all morning long about this, we or could. at least before the news, because we're looking at this article from The Economist. Uh, it's a handy explainer looking at why the British. British are so fond of lining up and where the queues are actually the best way to allocate scarce resources. Now, if you look at the media headlines on the queue, it's been described as the most British thing ever. Yes. As the I queue of all queues. scones are the most British things. I see scone. <laughs> Over the weekend, it was the queue. And like you mentioned, David Beckham in line, I think, garnered a lot of um, admiration. Of admiration, yeah. admiration for doing it. You know, so the question here is, the, the issue with queue is that first come, first serve, right? If, you're, if you come in line first, you basically get it. You get in line first. Of course, the economist wants to put in all sorts of other different permutations for you to get access to basically visit the casket. One was a lottery format where you basically draw draw lots and the first few get through. The other was a market pricing mechanism where you, you, pay, know, you people pay, to queue, pay people right? to do it. So, I mean, there are all these kind of things. But I like the queue. It's very elegant. It's very simple. It kind of, you know, levels everybody up, I feel. I wonder if the queue could be as orderly and civilized and dignified as it was in any other country. Like, I'm not sure if a queue would be able to last as long in Malaysia, for example, with the weather. Definitely not. With the weather um, and how hot everything is here. But there's a tagging system. It's not, yes, so there's some organization yes. and system to it, right? So I think if you want people to queue and you want everyone to behave themselves, then you must have a system whereby queue cutters are just not allowed, right? Otherwise, you just create a bit of a riot. That I agree. I mean, that's why bank bank systems are pretty good. You go in, you get a number, you wait in a table. I think the actual physical line doesn't kind of work, but mm. a digital a queue system. system works. Yes. And I wonder how much the, I guess, purpose of the queue factors into all of this, right? Because the purpose was ultimately to pay respects to a monarch that everyone um, assumingly uh, admired and, 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 you know, held in high esteem. A queue, for example, concert tickets or a queue for a piece of pastry uh, a may queue not... For the Apple phone, which, by the way, in Singapore, the person who got the first Apple iPhone ever in Singapore or the iPhone 14 was Malaysian. 
Just a fun fact. Yeah, so... <laughs> Just a fun fact. Fun fact, indeed. Fun... So, so I think that, that also factors into it how patient people are, how perhaps tolerant people are of the elements and of just factors that are going on around them. I think the queue in the UK was an act of solidarity. Like, I wanted... It's a kind of rite of passage. Like, I want to show that I did the hours, right? I took the effort to pay homage to someone. So in this case, this queue is a bit different and a bit special because, you know, you can see a lot of Brits really, truly adore mm. their queen. And so they just wanted to... To show the effort, right? I think on other cases, like I want to buy a new phone or something to the effect, or actually get my loan processing application. There's less tolerance and a, and definitely time is of the essence yeah, there. I think I can, here time really is what matters more. And also, you know, it's almost like for like the BBC, right? This morning when I was listening to BBC World. Um, they interviewed so many people along the queue, right? They were just lining up and they were actually t- asking these people because tomorrow is a state funeral. What if they don't actually manage to see, get into Westminster, Westminster Hall? Would they be devastated? No. And they weren't, you know. They, they said, no, it be. doesn't so much about the fact that I have to go into the hall, but I'm lining up here with everyone else and it's part of that process where I mourn the Queen and the passing of her. It's the same thing, right? Like the distinction between a journey and the end state or the mm. a milestone outcome. I think for many of us in this case here this is the journey mattered more than actually actually seeing the casket and seeing the coffin i think for many of them because i think especially for someone like the queen so high up there where you've never really had that one-to-one relationship i think she was that enigma yeah that people never really had encountered so deeply so my next question is what are you willing to queue for because in life right food. We're, we're not always willing to queue for everything are you willing to queue for food great chakwetel yes in penang yes i would <laughs> so you would queue for an hour for great this great tafufa in ipo definitely yes <laughs> so you've been in ipo definitely <laughs> so I would. you know what motivates philip right food clearly what will you queue for shas it's a very good question i do remember in my younger days i did queue for the latest harry potter novel um, so that was something Did you get that dressed up like a little mini Harry I Potter? I did not get dressed up. <laughs> I did not get dressed up. But when I got there, I realized that what I was doing was really nothing special because definitely there were others who had queued no, longer than I No, very special yes. though. And yourself, Shaoning, what would you queue for? Money, but otherwise, <laughs> what? So you queue at the all bank, the, essentially. You're so shallow, Shami. Make money, all not take my own money that out. You will queue for his money. Say. Well, tell us what you would queue for. You know, you can WhatsApp us at zero one eight seven eight nine double eight double nine or tweet us at BFM Radio six twenty five in the morning. We're heading into the six thirty a.m. news bulletin. We'll come back with a look at global headlines. Here is Ragged Wood by the Fleet Foxes to take you to the news. BFM eighty nine point nine. BFM eighty nine point nine. That was New. Order with Be A Rebel. You are listening to The Morning Run. It's 6.41am on Monday the 19th of September, the start of yet another work week. I'm Shazana Mokdar in studio with Wang Xiaoning and Philip C. Now it's that time of morning where we take a look at what's been making headlines around the world. Philip, why don't you start us off with what's caught your eye? I think uh, the Queen's funeral, which is going to take place uh, later this evening in Malaysia, early this morning in the United Kingdom, I think is catching a lot of attention. Over the weekend, you you saw the queues for the vigil. You saw the princess vigil, the eight grandchildren, I think, holding uh, I think holding vigil around the casket. Also, a lot of world leaders are converging into London. It's essentially like a United Nations General Assembly without the General Assembly there. <laughs> With the exception of some notable absentees, uh, like the Saudi crown prince and also Russia and such. There was an uproar about uh, the invitations that uh, were extended to, I think, the Chinese government as well as the Saudi Arabian government. At this point, uh, I'm not sure if there's going to be representation on either side. Apparently, it's a Chinese representative. One of the ministers will be going, but you're right. Russia is not going, neither is the crown prince of Saudi Arabia. 
Indeed. Uh, so yes, all eyes on what's going to happen there. Um, we do know that uh, Malaysia is represented by the Yang Dipertuan Agong uh, and his wife. Uh, they will be paying their respects to um, the late Queen Elizabeth. Well, what's interesting is uh, the BB pod- BBC BB podcast. BBC podcast actually highlighted how different leaders are arriving. So, of course, some flashy ones arrived in like a silver Rolls Royce, while other leaders arrived in a bus, like together <laughs> in a group. <laughs> so, the BBC said basically, BBC said basically, this is like never seen before wake of a certain level, it is right? A, it, it is unprecedented and I think it's very interesting that the Queen's funeral is bringing world leaders especially after the pandemic. It's There are a lot of conversations about all these side discussions that are going to happen in tandem with this funeral because you're never seeing this bunch of like princess royalty and also global well, leaders all converging in one place. So some of the royal figures in attendance and this is according to the Financial Times, right? So you've got the Japanese Emperor, you've got King Philippe of Spain, you've got the Belgian Royal House Household. You've got the Norwegian household. I doubt they went on a bus. No, I don't think they arrived on a bus. I wonder who are the the so called break, you know, inverted commas. Dare we say losers that came on a bus? <laughs> They're not losers, right? They advocate public transport. Maybe they, we they are do. the ones that are going green. They are the winners. Excuse me. Yeah, I yeah. presume Jacinda Adam probably came. Although she did cut queue though. Did she? I think so. I mean, all these world leaders. I, think I don't think they have twelve queue. hours to queue. Honestly, right? Their time is rather precious. That's true. Yeah. Uh, what else has caught your eye? I think, well, what, what else has caught my eye, of course, is the Fed. Guess what? They're meeting this week and they're going to decide on the interest rate, whether it's 75 basis points or 100 basis points. So for mere mortals who are wondering what is this basis points, it's, it's just the interest rate height of whether it's 0.75% or full percentage 100? point. Seriously? Yeah, that I mean, is 75 still, seems to be in the cake already. Yeah, that's a consensus-driven figure. We'll be, of course, reporting this. Uh, and if it's going 100 basis points, I think people will think, okay, US clearly in a recession, right? That the Fed really needs mm to put the brakes on inflation. But what does it mean for a ringgit? <laughs> That's my biggest worry. This what happens to the ringgit? It, uh, well, doesn't do so well. Ringgit this morning, 4.5350. Of course, no trading over the weekend, but that's indications very much so of US dollar strength continuing uh. to be the one and I repeat, the one safe haven out there. Oh, yeah. I wish the ringgit was moving up, running upwards. But you know who is not running at all? It's apparently Do Kwon. He apparently is saying he, that he is not on the run. Who, who is, is Do, Do Kwon? Kwon? Yeah, I, I was going to ask he you. He is the wanted South Korean founder of the failed cryptocurrency Terra, which collapsed earlier this year, wiping out $40 billion. According to him, he's not running away, although now the Singapore so police force can't trace him. He doesn't say where he is. So if I issue a statement that I'm not on the run, is that enough to say that I'm not on the run if I, people can't well, find me. Well, you could say that also for then Joe maybe, Lowe. Yeah, maybe I'm Joe on the needs, run as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm not running from anybody. Who sees I'm but running? I'm not going to tell you where I am. It's top yeah. secret. Guess. Guess. Go guess. ahead. Guess. <laughs> so I guess it's a cat and mouse game of sorts, it perhaps. Like a cat and mouse game. Something that we'll be keeping an eye on moving forward. Oh, it by is, the way, there is a strong earthquake that hit southern Taiwan. Buildings collapse. Uh, yeah, so these natural disasters are pretty scary. I think if you see also in newspapers across the board, a typhoon in Japan, yes, a hurricane in Puerto Rico, and massive storms in Alaska, El Nina is really roaring across the whole Pacific Ocean now. 6.45 in the morning. We are heading into some messages. Uh, we'll come back and continue this discussion and look at what's making headlines in our local newspapers and portals next. Stay tuned. BFM 89.9. The Rivers of Babylon, that was Bonnie M. Uh, we have 
quite the, uh, I guess, water theme. It was We Heard Islands in the Stream earlier this morning, and now it's the Rivers of Babylon. I do wonder what's coming up next. You are listening to The Morning Run, the by the way. The Rivers of Elections, <laughs> probably. Well, I hope not. I think this is where the whole newspapers are brewing about this monsoon election, because that Sri Zayed Ahmadi has said that, you know, they shouldn't discount the possibility of a monsoon election. As a result, I think you're seeing the ire from Pakadan Harapan. They are saying they want to run a referendum against it. Um, you know, that's true, you know, because we've always assumed that, okay, the election window for this year is very narrow, which is in early November, because after that, it's monsoon season, and then after that, it's going to be February, March. But I think what Zahin Hamidi has done is kind of turn the tables over and say, look, let's not discount that possibility, although we know the amount of inconvenience and disruption that we'll get. Yeah, I don't know how I get. I don't know how strategic that is to telegraph that elections can take place during a time where everyone is really thinking about their lives and livelihoods. Uh, it's but a, it's to me, the... it sounds a bit tone deaf and mm, um, not bit. really the right, uh, I guess, tact forward. But it's not the first time we've run elections or we held elections during monsoon season, right? There have been times I think the elections have been in December. I, well, I don't recall in yeah. my living memory, but I don't discount that perhaps it has happened in the past. However, given just the magnitude of floods that we saw last year during the same time, um, I just feel that everyone's focus should be on you know protecting um, lives and livelihoods rather than maybe having to think also about casting your vote uh, in a ballot somewhere. And that's why I think even if you look in the New Straits Times, Amno is confident of G15 this year. If you are opening the possibility of a monsoon, you know, it could take place anywhere up to December. You know, there's Three months after budget is released, I think October 7th, it's all for play, man. All for play. All right. We will be keeping an eye on what happens on these developments. But meantime, what else has caught your eye in terms of local headlines in the papers? Well, I think for me, also back again to the elections, because election season is heating up. Uh, New Straits Times again, pass warns Amno against going solo. Islamist Party says it seeks to unite other Malay parties to face G15. Now, pass believes that Amno's move to go solo in the G15 may backfire, reminding it of the Malay Party's fall from power in the 2018 polls. I think we are going to see more of this kind of rhetoric as uh, parties, uh, you know, it's trade accusations or trade allegations or, or you know, to kind of win win the vote. I always wonder, you know, with when, when you talk, talk about fragmentation and you split the vote across the board, who benefits and who wins is the question mark. Yeah, anyway, we've already started to see different MPs coming out to say whether they will defend their seats or not. The first one, of course, is the princess. Is that her name? Princess of uh, Pakatan uh, PKR. The Reformation princess yeah, was Prefer- her moniker Monica. at one point. So that you is... mean PKR vice president, yeah, excuse me. Uh, Noro Iza, she's keen to defend uh, Permatong Pao's seat in GE15. And many people are questioning whether she's, she's going to kind of relaunch herself in the party, right? Because she had been quiet and taken a back seat in the last few years. And I think now maybe mm. we'll see more, visi- more visible signs of her, actually. Uh, question marks about whether she might actually be one day a future Prime Minister for Malaysia. Indeed. So a lot of uh, questions on who's running, who's not. We did speak of Kairi Jamaluddin last week and uh, rumours that he may not be defending his Rumbau seat. Uh, and now Nurul Iza coming to say that she would like to defend her Pramatang Pau seat. I think everyone's going to see uh, who's running, where, who's in, who's out. That's going to be the talk of the town uh, as and when news comes out. Uh, other headlines. I'm looking at a story here uh, that I see in the Malay Mail. Uh, not Malay Mail, I'm sorry. Malaysia Kini being uh, reported by Bernama. Uh, the Minister for for women, um, Rina Harun has said that the number of child protection officers under the Social Welfare Department needs to be increased immediately um, in order to handle cases of child abuse and neglect. There are just not enough child protection officers at the moment, she says. So, I mean, I guess the question is, 
uh, is this an issue about not getting the budget in place to hire people? Or is it that we don't have enough people that can be trained to manage this whole process? Because it is not easy. And we've, t- we've heard this so many times, right, about the need to increase the number of child protection officers coming through. The question is, what's the blockage here? Is yeah. it really budget? Is it really that? Because we're hearing a lot of discussions everywhere across all ministries, you know, subtly hinting that for budget 2023, they want to see higher allocations, whereas we know in reality, we have to have that fiscal discipline. And Shani, you always say, right, someone needs to be the adult in this yeah. room and make these tough calls. And also, you know, just because you got a budget, did you actually spend it? For example, I'm just curious, and I might be wrong. You spent it wisely. Yeah, like the MOE, right? They were supposed to give out all these laptops and iPads or whatever, did they really give it all out? Did people get these things that they were supposed to during COVID-19? I want to know whether the money that was spent was spent wisely, whether there was a multiplier effect, the people who should get it did get it. Yeah. Right? Um, Very quickly, the Edge um, Weekly has an article, frankly speaking, my favourite column, about the loan moratorium is helpful, but not for the long run, which is whether we should extend loan moratoriums to SMEs. And we've had this discussion before, right? Mm. Um... And I think for me, you know, three years into the pandemic, if you really need a loan moratorium... Well, you're a zombie company. Well, yeah. Saying, I mean, thing are you're you just that, struggling temporarily or are you, have you been struggling for the last three years? That's why, you know, I always think about it as a corporate business. First year, you know, you're kind of forgiven. Second year, you've got to start reinventing your business. Not in your third year, I think really the, the chickens have come to roost. Yeah, whether you're in structural decline is the question you should yourself, ask yourself hard and not throw good money off the bat. All right, it's 6.56 in the morning. We're heading into the 7 a.m. news bulletin. And after that, we'll take a look at how global markets closed last week. Uh, Taking you to the news now is the temper trap with sweet disposition. Stay tuned, BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.